I'm Nayan Ramachandran. Koji Igarashi desu. And I'm Dan Stern. And, and this is J-Play, the Plays and Podcast. Here in sunny, not so sunny Osaka. It's actually nighttime right now. <laughs> uh, I would like to say sunny Osaka, but uh, it's, it's been really sunny. Lately. Soon it will be blazing hot. Blazing hot. And we have approximately two weeks until blazing hot. I'd be surprised if we had two weeks. That's true. Fair enough. Uh, with me, as you've already heard, on my right, I've got uh, Dan, the man Stern. Right here, being the Stern, being the man. Woo! Thank you. He's uh, Playism's content acquisition manager. What, is, what does that mean? Uh, that means I acquire content, surprisingly enough. Wow. Bribes, money, bribes, <laughs> <Yeah>. money. <laughs> Bri- yeah. Bribes and money? That's right. <laughs> Nailed it, he knows. He That's knows. right. I want it. And that other voice you hear is the venerable Ben Judd. The venerable Ben Judd. Thank you. No Very much. Um, what have I done? What have you done? What haven't I done? Here's the thing. Is Ben Judd, to some people, maybe uh, really well known, to some they have no idea who you are. All right. So why, why, don't you, why don't you just tell us, what have you done? Okay, so, uh, quick history. I spent uh, eight years at Capcom, for those who don't know. Um, I started in their US office. From there, I moved on to the Japan side, built their internal localization team from the ground up. This was after Resident Evil 1 was launched, so the Jill Sandwich uh, and Blood. I hope this is not Chris's blood. That's not. That's not mine. That's not my fault. That's not on me. I take absolutely no responsibility for that. Although sometimes I wish I did because that's pretty funny. Still, um, uh, after that, I became uh, their first foreign producer, and I was the producer on Bionic Commando, both the 3D version, uh, which actually has gotten a lot more love recently. Uh, than when first came out. That's right, and Bionic Commando Rearmed. That was one of Capcom's first digital offerings. Um, from there, I moved on to become a video game agent. I did not know these things existed, but they do. And I am extremely fortunate to work with uh, fantastic clients such as Comcept, Platinum Games, From Software, Dimps, etc., etc. A lot of the games that people really love that they wonder, you know, how do these people get together? Mm-hmm. You're the man behind the plan. It depends on what you mean by how they get together. Well, you know, publishers and developers find each other, you know, the birds and the bees, and eventually a game is made. So, I think this is probably a a good point uh, to potentially discuss the Japanese game industry and the state affairs. Uh, Fortunately, as a video game agent, I'm I'm in between a lot of these discussions, and so you get to see some of the, the discussions that are going on behind the scenes. And you know, unfortunately, what the reality is. Uh, where a lot of this is not conveyed to the average everyday consumer. But before we get there, and I know this is one of those things that every podcast has, and some of you listeners may not want to hear it, but still, we're going to put you through the paces. I think we should do a what are you playing section. I agree. Uh, But before that, people should probably know who the hell I am. 
Who the who hell are, who are, is are you? What is that? That is, that is a very sexy voice. Thank you. So can you do a self-introduction for me, Mr. Ramachandran Munson? You got you nailed it. You nailed it. That's yeah. right. No. Anybody seen Fish Called Wanda? That's one of the funniest scenes ever. Anyways. Uh, I am uh, Nayan Ramachandran. I am the marketing manager for Playism. And I now also handle our uh, platform business development. You know what? It just occurred to me. What is Playism? What is what playism? is a playism? That is a great question, Dan. Why don't you handle that? Playism is a digital distribution platform uh, focused on indie games. Uh, we have two sites: one in English and one in Japanese. And the whole idea is bringing content from one side of the pond to the other uh, in both directions. And we've recently expanded into publishing, so we are we are bringing games to say PlayStation Three, Four, to Vita. Uh, awesome titles like uh, like Asta Breed, Revolver 360, Crawler, and you know we've got our sights set on other on other platforms as well. So, so yeah, we are. Uh, so that means that you guys are authorities in the Japanese indie space, correct? That's correct. Yes, that is exactly what we do. Unfortunately, one of the things about this podcast means that we're going to be able to discuss um, a lot of the different indie titles that you guys represent, potentially publish. Uh, and just give people an inside look into the whole Japanese indie dev scene, which is, I think, something that uh, a lot of people are curious about. But as you said, there's a wall in between, uh, I think, Japan a lot of times and the rest of the world. So uh, very interesting look into that side uh, of J- Japanese development. Um, and with that, now that we know you are... Yes, we know I would like to talk about what we're playing very quickly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was actually thinking, Ben, that you should go first, only because Dan and I are playing the same game, and the biggest problem is, is that it's love, love Plus. It's Love Plus. Talking we about love, love Plus. Tokyo we have the same girlfriend. It's very confusing. No, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll say what we're playing in a second, but the problem is that I feel we may uh, talk for too long, and you will never get to talk about what you're playing. Okay. And I'm super interested to hear what are you playing? I am playing Love Plus. No. I am playing a little RPG called Bravely Second. This is, of course, the sequel to Bravely Default. Um, I think that when Final Fantasy XIII was released, it, it created a lot of uh, friction. I don't want to say animosity, that's a strong word. Um, with a lot of the core RPG gamers, and certainly with a lot of the RPG, JRPG, sorry, gamers, that are in my age bracket that grew up on Final Fantasy 2, 3, the mm-hmm. US versions, of course, of those. And, you know, I wanted a classic Final Fantasy-esque experience, and we haven't really had one of those in a long time. So when Bravely Default came out, what, two or three years ago, I was just like, oh, this is it. You know, this is great. I didn't like having to complete it four times in a row. Spoilers, but <laughs> still, when the sequel was announced, I was super pumped. I was super glad that it also did very well in the West. Couldn't wait to get my hands on it. I've played probably about 20 hours uh, of it, and that includes me sleeping four hours a night instead of six hours a night, having to shave that off to keep playing the game. Um, and I'll tell you what, it, it, the graphics are amazing. The system is tried and true. It's, you know, they've improved upon it in quite a few areas, but they've almost over-featured there are so many features and so many different ways to interact with the game from 
a, a mini game in which you're making little stuffed animals that I I was just like, I'll play this for a little bit. And I played three hours to uh, the different street pass stuff where you find friends and you're building long-term weapon power-ups to, um, of course, the core game. Then there's all these tutorial achievements that you unlock. Then there's group macro achievements with you and tens of thousands of other users that play together and try and beat these achievements. And it's just like, there's so much stuff that I'm just like, I, I'm rarely overwhelmed. I'm, I'm happy to have more options, but there are just so many options that sometimes I'm just like, uh, where, like, where do I put my focus in this game? Do I go on subquest? Do I go on main quest? Do I do this other mini game? Do I try and build these other? It's just like so much to do that I'm kind of overwhelmed. But core experience, it's fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. If you love the first one, I'm sure you're gonna love this one. So with that, I'm gonna pass the uh, what games you playing hot potato over to you guys, and let's hear more about Love Plus. <laughs> so actually, the the game that. We've both been playing, both Dan and I have been playing, is Bloodborne. So I actually... Never heard of them. Never heard of them. I don't know what that game is. <laughs> Says the guy who works with From Software. That's right. Never heard of that. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> so actually, I had actually stopped playing Bloodborne for a little bit because a friend that I had been playing with had leveled out of my range and was off to finish the game while I was very busy with work. And um, so I, I switched off from the game for a little bit to play uh, Mortal Kombat. You are just a very violent human being. I'm just all over the place. Bloodborne, Mortal Kombat. I love, I love that gore. No, uh, so I switched off for a little Al bit. Gore? I love Al Gore. He invented <laughs> the internet, man. <laughs> People would not be listening to this podcast right now without Al Gore. Okay. And? Anyway, so, <laughs> so Bloodborne. I'm back into Bloodborne. Dan recently bought a PS4. Congratulations, Dan. Bought it just to play Bloodborne. He just to play Bloodborne. Well, and Axiom Verge, but first I'm starting off with Bloodborne. Fantastic. It's a, it's a fantastic game. Is it? I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's one of the only, if not only, ninety plus rated games uh, next gen. Oh, on did on you know, Metacritic? Yeah, Metacritic. I know it's Metacritic, but still, just for a a tentpole to gauge a review, a, a score around, a number around. I would say because it's Metacritic, it's hard to to get up to that. Sure. No, I mean, just from just from people trolling the games and whatnot, it's hard right. to achieve. A, well, I mean, Metacritic's supposed to be based. Uh, around actual reviewers and hopefully they're not trolling the game. Hopefully. Oh, right, right, right. Well, yeah, sure, the user reviews might be, you know, inaccurate, but most of the time, like, Metacritic, I mean, I, I don't actually know about the Metacritic for Bloodborne, but if it's in the 90s, it's not it surprising. Uh, last time I saw it, I thought it was 93. So, you're playing this game, sorry to interrupt, but no, I, go ahead. I'm very curious uh, about this, and that is, have you played the Dark Souls series? So Dan has never played the Souls games. Right, I have. I actually played Demon Souls and Dark Souls. One and two. I've not played Dark Souls two. I've only played Demon Souls and Dark Souls. Why didn't you play two? Uh, two. I think at the time I was playing Final Fantasy fourteen, so I was just so obsessed with that, and I was playing Diablo three. So a bunch of stuff was going on. I didn't get around to playing it. Yep. Um, I might go back and play Scholar of the First Sin at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, I knew the A-team, you know, from software's, like, big teams working on Bloodborne. I was like, I'm in. Yep. I love Dark Souls. I'm absolutely in. Okay. Difficulty. So the whole discussion around difficulty, and trust me, I've, I've heard this from many places, including publishers. Um, the difficulty is a slippery slope for that sort of game in so much as 
The difficulty is what a lot of people go crazy over. They want a really hard game. They want to feel like they've earned their victory, right? Mm. That being said, the difficulty which brings the core gamers on board also sometimes makes the game mutually exclusive so that people that are mid-core gamers are afraid of that game. And I know because, guess what? I'm a mid-core gamer. Right. I'm afraid of that game. <laughs> I... I know this makes me a casual or a cash or whatever the new filthy whatever the kid fil- filthy cash whatever the words right that there. the young gamers are saying. I know this makes me that, but like, I have a friend that's a much better gamer. I have him play the game while I watch. I'm the man behind the so game curtain. Are you a hardcore game voyeur? I'm a hardcore game voyeur. That's a very good way to put it. <laughs> that's true. I remember you watching me play through half of Wonderful One Hundred One. That's right, and I've had uh, other people play through uh, Bioshock uh, Infinity or whatever. Infinite. 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 Thank right. you. So, I mean, there you go. I, I know I don't have the chops to do it anymore. My reaction speed's slow. I'm, I don't, you know, for whatever, for whatever reason. Your sitting hair has something to do with it, too. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> hey there. Whoa. Um, we can't all be as young and beautiful as Mr. Dan Stern. But um, the point is this. I've heard that Bloodborne's difficulty is slightly easier than the previous titles. And you, as a core gamer, do you see that as a plus, a minus, or doesn't really matter? Well, there's there's a couple things. First, it is slightly easier, but it still starts just as hard. Mm-hmm. So the starting point is is just as difficult. It still feels difficult. And then when you start to get into it, when you get the flow of the game, it becomes easier, you get used to it, and instead of just making it really difficult and giving you a brick wall, the game does a really good job of designing encounters and places where something will happen that throws you completely off, where it changes what you think is supposed to be the pattern of how you're supposed to play the game, and that creates that that sudden fear of, wait, maybe I don't get this game. I love That happened with uh, Faster Than Light. Where right. you play through it um, once, you think you know how to play it, and then there's this whole other way to play it. It's like, mind-blown, what the hell? You so, try the new ship, it's totally different than you had expected. That's I right. got to the Mantis ship in that game and found that it was a completely different experience. A different experience, exactly. I don't, I don't want to derail the conversation. I want to hear your thoughts as someone who has never played through a, a From Software, hardcore, uh, you know, masochistic experience uh, and have and started to play Bloodborne. This, yeah, this is my first Souls experience, and... Um, I it's not Souls. That is trademarked by a different publisher. Oh, excuse me. This is my Sorry, as the agent, I need to make sure that my client is protected <laughs> from any <laughs> slander or... Um, my, first, my first From Software experience. But I come from a, a background of playing really old, very hard titles. Like, I really like... I was like early, early Castlevania games were, that were, you know, NES games, the... Uh, the little bouncing hunchback men. Oh, oh yeah. the, the worst things, the worst things, those things ever. The, the Medusa heads. The Medusa heads. There's so many little tiny bouncing things in the game. It's like, ah, I want to kill you, little bouncing things. And, and like I said uh, earlier, when we were talking a while ago, uh, I just finished playing Rondo of Blood for the first time, which is a very challenging. What is a Rondo? A Rondo is, a, I believe, it's a dance that involves a lot of spinning. <laughs> is it weird? It's a dance. I thought it was like a musical. I thought it was like a musical type. Super great answer because it's like. <laughs> Super, 
super dry. I yeah. believe it is. I believe no, it's well, a the thing, the thing is, that came up for me recently because I saw an ateji, like um, Japanese characters associated to uh, sounds that they're not usually associated to, uh, for the word rondo, and they used kanji that meant like a rotating dance. Interesting. And so actually, I, what I just said is it may not even be correct, but I, I, I think that's what it is based on those oddities. Listeners, do a check, find out. Anyways, we're, I just want to hear, again, very quickly, mm. what was your opinion on this it's, difficulty level? The first five hours I played and made no progress whatsoever. I had no idea where to you go. You had to learn how to play a From Software game. I had to learn how to die, and then I had to learn how to play. <laughs> Because the first thing was, I died. From software games, you have to learn how to die, then you have to learn how to play. Nice. That should be like a tagline for them. I I felt like that was my experience, though. I died three or four times, and by the the fifth one, I was like starting to get frustrated, and then I had to like work my way through like, you know, the loss of each each death until I finally came to to grips with the fact that I'm going to die, and I need to accept that. You came to grips. (laughs) <laughs> That's a very deep statement to make. And to come to grips with my own mortality. Well, they, oh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, you really do kind of have to. I think the one thing that I really love about the game is that the game is only as scary, in the end, it's only as scary as you, as much as you value every life. So you obviously you lose your souls, your blood echoes, or either souls or bloodborne. You lose your souls or echoes every time you die. And obviously, of course, the more that you have, the higher that you can level, the more you can upgrade things. And the more that you have, the more precious your current life is, because when you die, you lose all of them, and you have to restart and go back and get them. Right. And of course, that means killing every enemy again in order to make your way back to where your yeah, souls are. Yeah, yeah. But the important thing about it is that when you just let go, yep. when you say, well, those are gone, I guess I'll just go back and get them, or just, you know, I'm not supposed to be here, I'll move to the other side, that's when you actually will probably make more progress. Mm-hmm. I used to work... Uh, we'll close this section out because we need to move on to um, the Japanese indie discussion. But I used to work at the computer lab. One small Ben Judd story. 21, 20, uh, Ohio State University. Go Bucks. And um, <laughs> when I worked there, this was back before computers really had progressed to the fantastic machines they were. We just barely had the internet, I think, at that time. And people would be writing up their master's theses, their papers, etc. And computers would lock. And I honestly did not know anything about computers as much as the next person. It was just a job. So every time the computer locked, the solution set was to turn it off, then on. Of course. Man, I have seen people, grown adults brought to tears that had written, you know, 30 pages of their best work. And that just locked and was gone. But now that I know what I know from talking to you and Bloodborne, I could have just said, just gotta let it go, man. Let it go. Just let it go. And just write 30 pages. Embrace your mortality. <laughs> let it go and just rewrite again. And would have seen if they would have killed me because they'd probably, probably would have spooned out my eyes or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that you never told them because you're right. to be here right It's a good now. thing I had not met you that's, guys yet. That's great advice, Ben. <laughs> Embrace your mortality. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Mr. Ramachandran Zansamandan, this Um, is your podcast, this is your format. Indeed. I was actually thinking that we'd take a a quick break, okay, and then we'd come back and we'd start talking about the Japanese uh, gaming scene. Fantastic. All right, so we'll be right back.
we're back. Uh, so, I was thinking, now that we've, we've got all the introductions out of the way of what you're playing and what have you, I thought we'd really get into some good stuff, get into uh, the Japanese gaming scene. The Japanese gaming scene or the Japanese indie gaming scene? You're right. It is specifically the Japanese indie gaming scene. I mean, the Japanese gaming scene is something that a lot of people, I think, try their best to explore and know about, but the Japanese indie gaming scene is kind of unknown. How about we do this? How about we do this? You guys specialize in the Japanese indie gaming scene. I, I don't want to say specialize, but most of my clients are top tier. They're the big boys. They're the largest uh, independent um, developers that work in Japan. Let me do a quick two or three minute state of affairs, see the Japanese big boy gaming scene, and we'll transition over to the little boy gaming scene because little boy transition over to the Indian <laughs> Trust me, Nayan Ramachandrism, he's a very large man, so. Uh, of stature, of course, as well. Just little, little boy doesn't do you justice. Just, little I, boy does not do him justice. That little sound you hear in the background is just Ben digging his own grave. That's right. That's right. Uh, embrace your mortality. So, <laughs> um, the reality is this: Konami just recently announced some pretty big, earth-shattering news. Crazy news. Can you tell the, the listeners? Um, it's probably been out everywhere by now, but just in case, there are a few people living under rocks that don't know about it. What was this news? So, uh, you're talking about the delisting, right? That's correct. So, I, I, you, you can correct me if, if I say something wrong, because I, I, may, I may say this improperly, but they've delisted themselves from the stock market? Is that The New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange They're still on London and they're still uh, in the Tokyo. But specifically, the digital entertainment division has been delisted. Is that correct? That's correct. So that they can focus on their health club sections? Am I, am I, am I correct here? That's correct. So, <clears throat> this is one of the reasons why uh, I think I'm very fortunate to work with some of the best Japanese talent. Uh, and that is... Japanese publishers are not greenlighting uh, a lot of major console. This includes digital uh, and especially retail products. So they've pretty much gone back to focusing on mobile. Um, not gone back to what I mean. They're, they're very now insular. It's very closed. They're, they want to first and foremost focus on the Japanese mobile market. And, and there's a lot less opportunities there for big developers like Platinum Games or From Software. So one of the things that I do is I will bring in uh, potential other uh, publisher opportunities from around the world, China, Korea, uh, North America, and Europe. And I do this because I honestly still love Japanese console developers. I love the stuff that Platinum Games makes. I think that's I, why we're all here, right? That's I mean, that's, that's why I'm in Japan. That's, the, that's what made me happy as a young child, was playing the awesome Japanese games on the NES. So to see these fantastic creators, and I've talked with many of them before that have begrudgingly moved into the mobile space, and they didn't want to. Um, but that's really the only opportunities that the Japanese market were giving them. So what I'm trying to do with my day job, so to speak, is provide as many opportunities to the big developers, who you wouldn't think need help, uh, but they need to reach out and be more expansive and work with other publishers around the world because 
the people that used to traditionally fund them, they're not funding them anymore. And Konami, as much as that news is shocking to, I think, the rest of the world, I'm actually not as shocked as, as other people because, again, I think this is going to be the future. I don't think it's going to end with Konami. I think there will be other Japanese companies, not that they get delisted. Uh, that's obviously clearly setting another statement as well. But I think that there's going to be other Japanese publishers in the future that slowly move away from console, uh, both package and detail, uh, digital content, and continue to focus only on mobile. So these Japanese creators, whether they get funded by the West or still manage to get funded by Japanese publishers, they need your help. And I know that the world's moved on. I know the sort of gaming preferences that I have are not representative of the masses anymore. But still, I think that a good JRPG really is going to probably be developed by a Japanese developer more than it will be a Western developer. And I would be sh very saddened to see that genre up and disappear. So please give your support to any Japanese developer, even if they're the big boys and you don't think that they need your support. Trust me, they, they do. do. Yeah, they, they need do. your support. But even more than the big boys, one could argue, the Japanese indie scene is even more brutal. And I would love to hear about some of the people that you work with and the ways that you work with them. But just a quick aside, and that is the Japanese indies are really up against it in so much as they don't get government funding or tax breaks where a lot of indies, and certainly developers, get them Canada, England, Sweden, Austria, etc. in a wide variety of ways. Um, Japan doesn't. Secondly, VC... Um, capital money does not come in to the game companies. It's largely focused on technology, whereas there is VC money available uh, for North American and European game developers. Um, those opportunities don't exist for Japan. Kickstarter, this is something that I mentioned at the first Bit Summit, uh, and then I put my money where my mouth was, and I worked with Comcept to help them, of course, achieve uh, a fantastically successful Kickstarter of Mighty Number no. 9. Uh, Kickstarter was also something where it largely is unknown in Japan and honestly even with Mighty Number no. 9 we had hoped for a larger uh, amount of support from Japanese gamers but the concept culturally of funding a game uh, as an individual is something that like Japanese people are very giving they will spend more money on funding disaster relief in other countries etc than a lot of their other uh, country counterparts. But when it comes to like arts or industry or something like that, the idea of donating uh, isn't really something that's, that's caught on. And culturally, I don't know if it even fits. So you have indie developers that don't have nearly as many options uh, as their Western counterparts in Japan here. And then on top of it, you have a system in which you have lifetime employment at Japanese developer or publishers, sorry, or developers. And the idea is if I'm going to quit my company that technically will keep me hired until I'm 70 and feed my family and my kids for this indie dream, I'm really kind of blacklisting myself in a certain way. Because if you ever leave the fold, corporate Japan, move on to develop a game in your garage, and it fails miserably. They're not it's, just going to open the doors back up and let you back in. It is really, you get stigmatized. It's really hard to come back to it. So it requires 10 times the amount of bravery to just 
jump out there as an indie developer, which is why it's great to have you guys. So I think a lot of people even know that uh, Japan is it's famous uh, for job development being difficult. Yeah, finding finding new positions at the same or higher level in a, in just a different company is very difficult. You start from the ground and you work your way up. That's traditionally the way it's done here. Yep, that's correct. So you walk, work, work your way up and then you end up in a garage and you can't feed your kids, which is, <laughs> you I shouldn't laugh at you. I shouldn't laugh at you. Parents are very funny for us to No, that's awful. No. Um, so what do you guys do with the Indies? How are you helping uh, these guys get opportunities? Well, basically, uh, the, bi- the biggest thing that we, we do is that we work with Indies that are not even at the level that you're talking about, for the most part. We do work with Indies at a lot of different levels, but one of the one of the biggest groups of people that we work with are indies who they don't even consider themselves indies or even part of the game industry. They um, have basically tried their very best to make these games that they really want to make, but they never think that they're ever going to make money out of them. Yeah, I was going to point out before that uh, you were talking about like uh, indies trying to survive or make it in uh, in game development, but a lot of people that I've talked about, I don't think it's even so much about surviving or getting by or like making it big or something like that. It's they may even just consider themselves hobbyists. I just want to make this thing, and this is really fun for me. I when I'm done with this, I'm going to give it away for free or something like that. Like that's not terribly uncommon. Um, the the free sites that distribute games, uh, there are tons of great eight uh, bit RPGs to play for free out here. One of the biggest reasons for that is the. There's this stigma around paid indie games. Um, a lot of people who want to get noticed their very first game, there a lot of these sites have a ton of games. So they, to get noticed, if if you have to pay two dollars or three dollars, people just won't take the chance, and then you'll never get known, and you'll never you know build a small following of people that'll play your third or fourth game. If you make it free, people will notice. So the traditional wear a chicken suit and run outside to get attention, that's not working. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. I think anybody that's familiar with the uh, self-publishing for books uh, like industry in the United States may even recognize that strategy. Uh, there are a lot, I've seen it in a lot of places. People. You're not talking about the chicken suit, are you? No, but that's Chicken a suit idea. books are hot, too. Chicken suit books. You, people just have to take your word for it that you're wearing the chicken suit while you're writing a novel. When you go out in public, you're actually just wearing regular clothes. Like, I wrote this while I was wearing the suit. I swear I did. <laughs> no, uh, giving out the first book for free. Okay. You write a whole book for free on the hopes that somebody will like it and then buy the next one. Right. Which is, it's kind of a brutal position to be in. So you guys obviously give them opportunities to get more visibility. Uh, you know, you offer marketing support. You help them, as you said, cross the pond. Uh, and release their game on a global scale rather than just keep it in Japan. And honestly, without your help, there would be people that never ultimately... Um, sorry, Bob Johnson just tried to enter the room. Uh, there would be people that ultimately um, would never even know about these games. So like, that's a, a very important uh, role that you guys serve. So you're going to talk about one of your, your hit titles or... One of your biggest titles, uh, and that is, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, One Way Heroics Plus, is that correct? Yeah. All right, tell, tell me about this game, because I personally have never heard of it. So actually, One Way Heroics Plus is actually 
the DLC sequel of sorts. It's a standalone uh, DLC pack. Okay. Um, Dan, why don't you why don't you, you talk about it? You don't, you'd rather I talk about it? Are you sure? I think you know the game so much better than I do. You've put a lot more hours into it. Okay. Yeah. And you've been through it a lot of times. I've actually I have been terrible at that game. I tried really hard to beat the Demon King, and I haven't even done that yet. Okay. You just need to embrace your mortality. Embrace your mortality, man. Five five hours, and you'll realize how to play the game. Finally. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe that's the Dan Stern I'll go, I'll methodology. Go five more hours. There you go. <laughs> Uh, well, the thing is, yeah, I worked on the localization for the original One Way Heroics and did a lot of the QA, quote-unquote quality assurance, but localization, so I know the game pretty well. Basically, it's a, it's a mixture of, of roguelike and JRPG overworld. Someone, I'm sorry to interrupt, people are probably getting tired of this, but why is it called roguelike? There is no other genre. You don't say shooter-like, you don't say JRPG-like. You don't say dungeon crawler like. It's the only genre, subgenre name I can think of where like is automatically included in the proper name of that subgenre. Why? Actually, to be fair, to be fair, yes. Until first person shooters were an established genre, all of them were called Doom clones. Hmm. Until pretty much like Duke Nukem 3D. Okay. I mean, this is a long time. I'm dating. But they weren't called. Ones. They weren't called Doom likes. That, that, could have, that could have done it. Where did that come from? Um, I've recently seen that in pitches as an actual genre name, and I'm just like, I'm why actually, is it not just called like a rogue dungeon crawler or a rogue game or rogue esque or something? Why is it roguelike? I'm starting to see like added to other things because of the frequent use of the word roguelike. What? X, Putting on X the spot. Game like. I mean, you could end up calling something uh, Metroid like. Metroid <laughs> An Egovania-like? An Egovania-like. An Egovania-like. Yeah, it was actually my first, my, the, my first thought was actually, uh, there are other genres named after games. Metroidvania was the first thing that came to mind. Right. Um, but using the something like is actually uh, something that specifically originated with, with Rogue. Hmm. Okay, well still, it, it doesn't sound like proper English. My mother was an English teacher. She probably would not appreciate Rogue-like as a proper name. And Dan and I are both English majors. Tell me, so. tell me about this game. So that is roguelike. So I mean, you you know like the properties of a roguelike, right? It's uh, it's permanent death. Yeah. You don't you don't get to save your progress and move on. You when you die, you die, and that's it. You start over. Um, but it combines that with a JRPG overworld. So basically, the whole idea is that you've got a top down view, and you have this darkness on the left side, and it's every it's all turn based, but everything moves when you move. Okay. Uh, so you move right, you move left, you attack anything. The darkness moves one step. So the whole idea is that you have to be very economical with how you move, and you're always moving right, thus one way. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So it's randomized tile sets, randomized enemies, randomized events that you'll encounter as you're making this one direction journey, going into dungeons. Sometimes if you're in a really big dungeon, uh, if you don't get out in time, you can actually the, the the exit could actually get swallowed up by the darkness, and suddenly you have to figure out a way out. And you can you know pull out your axe and start beating down a wall to get out that way. But oh. if you don't have an axe, maybe you only have a sword. Uh, it's not particularly effective against stone, so pounding through the wall with a sword isn't going to work. Too it's not going to do much, right? And then you die. Yeah, you die a lot in that game. It's a lot of dying. Um, but what? But they're bosses. Did I hear you correct? There are bosses. Uh, I've only seen the first one. Uh, it's only one of... 
Uh, well, I've heard of two so in, far. The, in the original game, there are two bosses, okay. um, and they all happen at the. So there's one that's the Demon King that comes at random times while you're traveling, uh, and you can either run from them, and early on you probably want to do that, uh, and then, or you can fight them, and you probably need to be powered up, have right set of weapons. And a lot of that comes down to luck, it sounds like, right? Some of it comes down to luck. You have a chance to actually save weapons and items that you get during a run after you die in like a dimensional vault that you can pull out of the net in, a, in a future run. So if you find a good item, you can always keep it and be like, I'll come back for this. The chicken suit. Arm. The chicken suit, which is actually, yeah. Along with the chicken dagger, which is actually just a rubber chicken. It's just a chicken. Uh, and how effective is that on stone? Very effective. Never. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it sounds like a super interesting title. It sounds like the perfect, actually, indie title. I'm actually interested now. I love the name, One Way Heroics. Check it out, you guys. Sell this, I guess, on Playism? Absolutely, it's, it's right on Playism. So plus is the DLC pack. It's got a ton of new tile sets, a ton of new events, enemies, items, everything. If you love the first one, it's got almost twice the content of the original. If you've wow. never played it, it's only $6.99. It's a great just pick up. Support your indie uh, developers. Sounds like it's a great game, and you can get it at Playism, yeah? Absolutely. Playism-games.com. Shameless, shameless plug shameless completed. Plug. Now tell me about this uh, next thing here on the list. The Kyoto Jikyo Play Fest. What, what, I, what is Jikyo in the first place? What is Jikyo? Jikyo is the Japanese word for, that they use to describe Let's Plays. So Let's Play videos, um, they call them uh, like a Jikyo Play. So people are actually talking over top of play. Yeah. Okay. And the what was what was interesting to me something I learned at this event. What this event was was uh, a live let's play event with an MC and four let's players on stage, and they gave them interesting games to play, and then they play and make jokes and talk about it while they stream the whole thing live on Nico Nico Doga. What is Nico Nico Doga? Nico Nico Doga is like Twitch. It's like Japanese Twitch mixed with YouTube, kind of. Right. It actually came out before Twitch, didn't it? It did. Back when Justin TV was still around, that's when Nico Nico had first started. There you go. Okay. And it takes it takes a lot of comments, so people can can comment, and they even pull those up <coughs> on the on the large screen that's behind these uh, on the behind these Let's Players, so you can kind of see what people are saying and. Who who sponsors this? It sounds like it's rather involved, and there's video streaming and all this stuff that's set up. Uh, there were three sponsors, uh, if I recall correctly. First, Playism was one. Nice. Fantastic. And the other two, uh, Microsoft and Sony. Never heard of those guys, though. Yeah, yeah. kind of small companies. They're, right. they're on the up and up, though. No Nintendo, I guess. No, no Nintendo. No, you know, other, other indie uh, companies that need, need support and everything. Um, okay, so these four gamers are really good gamers. They're playing... I assume indie content, they're not playing major titles, or are they playing major titles too? Uh, they did also play some uh, some relatively major stuff. Uh, I suppose you could say Octodad is, is major at this point. I mean, it's on. It's still an indie title, I think. It's a major, well known indie title. Very it's like, it's like an Axiom point. Verge where it, it, it's an indie title, but it's now reached mainstream status as far as recognition goes, yes? Can I actually like back up to something you said just a second ago? You, may. you, you made the assumption that these guys are good at games. Now, they may be. But none of that was on display here, because it's, that wasn't the point. It was very clear early on that while we were watching this, that wasn't the point of the entertainment. It was not to see speedruns or super mega plays. It was to see them fail and say funny stuff and play a game that you know, was just hard to play. That's very, like, it's ingrained in the Japanese culture to, like, 
like failing miserably is funnier than watching the super cool guy play a lot of times, right. I think. Which is, there's that show, what's the show on at like midnight where the guy plays through uh, Super Game Center CX? Oh, Game Center CX. Yeah, you know, it, it's like that. Whereas I think the Western culture, I mean, we still appreciate watching a guy fail miserably as much as the next guy, but it's more on the skill, like the super awesome play, you know, yeah. version. Absolutely. I would love to see, um, this, this event sounds really cool. Uh, I would love to see a East, East versus West where you take randomly well-known Japanese Jikyo players and have them play very famous Western, like, brutal titles, mm. like the Roguelikes, or like, a, what's a really challenging Western title? Um, uh, I mean, Lords of the Fallen, I okay. think it's pretty challenging. Lords of the Fallen, there you go. And then vice versa, bring Western gamers and have them play their Japanese counterparts, people that don't, traditionally don't play, like, a, a Bloodborne or something like that, mm. and watch them die miserably, and have this international, like, gaming playoff I mean that's all failed together yes that stuff that stuff all I'm sure already happens on Twitch anyways with the sheer number of streaming and content that's going on there right. but still that'd be super interesting the super and, the really interesting thing about it uh, was this is it, you know there's a lot of already the fact that they're 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 playing and failing and having a good time but also like saying you know funny things while they're playing it reminded me so much of a Japanese variety show of comedians who are all together doing an event and you know the whole point of it is to be humiliated but the real commonality between a Japanese variety show and this event was that the live audience at this event <laughs> was 98% female so every time you've seen uh, uh, where is this event and uh, can I get there in time after this podcast <laughs> time machine over. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna go back about a month <laughs> can I go where is my time machine with I'll bring the chicken soup. It'll be great. Wow. Well, now now you see, now we're going to have an influx of gamers into Japan again. As if it wasn't bad enough. Yeah. As is. Um, it is it is just like uh, the, the Japanese TV audiences that you see, though. Uh, so that there were even some of the same reactions that you hear from the audience. You know, uh, I think people who have, who have come Ooh, out here. Uh, it's more like, hey, or, oh. You know, the same <laughs> stuff you hear when People somebody... Hear, I can I turn serious. that into a ringtone? Like, whenever you call, I'm going to, hey, I think any of the listeners who have come to Japan and been here for more than three minutes has, have, have definitely heard this before. Uh, what, what was that one more time? Hey. Oh, I like it. Don't look at me with your devil eyes. It's very <laughs> scary. So, uh, that sounds super interesting. Um, 98%. A female audience also sounds really interesting. No, that's that's not the point, Mr. Judd. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's move on to future events. Although I think the time of the podcast, it will have been a past event by that time. Yeah. There's a gigantic indie event in Japan that's not Bit Summit, but is a new indie event that is occurring in Tokyo. What is this event? Right. So this event is going to be called uh, Tokyo's Tokyo Indie Fe Indies Fest. Did I say that correctly? Uh, Tokyo Indies Fest is Tokyo's answer to Kyoto's Bit Summit. Where's Osaka's answer? Where is Osaka's answer? That is the Where's question. the Plays and Fest? Or something. The play Fest. We're working on it. It's, it's a secret project. Put us on the spot hardcore, huh? Secret project. So if you can get 99% female audience, I think it'll be bigger. <laughs> <laughs> You're the guy with the money and the bribes, right, Dan? So you get on that stack. I'll, I'll, I'll go bribe those, uh, those GQ play talents. That's right. So, 
Tokyo Indies Fest is going to be, it looks like a really interesting event. There are a lot of great names associated with it. I remember seeing uh, Kimura-san from A Million Onion Hotel. Yeah, yeah, Kimura-san. A what? A Million Onion Hotel is a fascinating and bizarre title uh, for- It sounds fascinating and bizarre. Million Onion Hotel. Those are three words I did not think would ever come together. I would strongly recommend it for, for any, any listener to, to Google that because it looks so cool. It's so wacky. So number, random number, random food, and random location. Give me, let's each do one. Go. Number. You know, 27,000. 27,000. Tomatoes. Tomatoes. I was going to say something I shouldn't say. McDonald's. <laughs> there you go. 27,000 tomato McDonald's. There you go. It's not the same. That did not work at all. Anyways. With everyone, you know, you can't shoot from the hip. That's yeah. what podcasts are all about, brother. So, it sounds like there's going to be more, more live Let's Play events going on at, at the event itself. Uh, there will be games on display for people to check out. Um, so there will be some huge names there. There'll be tons of uh, small names too. People in, in who kind of like are situated between those two worlds. Is there, so you're telling me that uh, Koji Igarashi is going to be there? Because I would love to get that guy's autograph. That would be fascinating. Would be, would be oh, great wait, to meet him. oh wait, he's going to be on an airplane. <laughs> Indeed he is. Indeed he is. He's got bigger fish to fry, kids. So, um, is this an event for consumers? Can somebody get on an airplane, uh, get off, and just go randomly enter this? And if so, what, what sort of money is involved for a ticket? Do we know? Uh, I don't have the consumer ticket price, mm-hmm. but it definitely is an event for the general public to come by. The, the point is, it's, it's like Bid Summit. You come in, you meet the people who made the game, you play the games. This one just seems Similar. like an amalgamation. It's like it's got everything. It's you know, it's just it's 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 more centrally located. It's bigger. It's got uh, real you know, GQL play. It's got more names, etc. I would just be afraid of it turning into something like a Tokyo Game Show because man, we're just too many I, people. I want to I want to avoid those public days like the plague because you know 70,000 people. You know, all together, it's just like super fire hazard. If anything goes wrong, you know, then there's going to be a lot of uh, anarchy going on. I will say this about Tokyo Game Show is that recently, especially this last year, with the, the Sony Indies booths sort of centrally located where people can play them, um, it was pretty easy to get in, meet the people who, made, who played the game, play the game with them, you know, talk about the game with them after that. It felt a little closer to, to my recent experience with PAX than my other experiences with uh, Tokyo Game Show in, in the past where like you wait three hours to play a game for 15 minutes and then you go do that one or two more times and then you go home tired. So. You haven't been to a Japanese amusement park <laughs> I for have. A, four yeah, hours to ride a two minute roller coaster. What about that makes sense? <laughs> Disney <laughs> is insane here. Yeah. Anyway, so that sounds like a fantastic event. It's awesome to hear there's more opportunities. Um, obviously, this will be something that has already occurred by the time uh, we launch this podcast. But still, uh, hopefully, there will be news about it and hopefully it'll be something here to stay because it sounds like a super interesting event and more opportunities for indies sounds great to me. It's fully, it's uh, super well located. It's like in the middle of Akihabara. So wow, how do they get that space? That sounds super expensive. And I love that it's, it's kind of romantic to see 
uh, a big game event occur in the the gaming hub for Tokyo in sort of like the gaming I just, district. It is not the gaming hub anymore. Not even this. Not I anymore. It's like the Maid Cafe and anime. It is the Maid Cafe that is, anime. It is super unfortunate, but... In the last 15 years, it's changed so much. Anyone that wants to go to the new gaming hub, it's much smaller, but it's more personal. Nakano. Nakano Broadway. Broadway is largely considered the new Actually, it's my favorite shop. It's not even a game shop. They, there was a place selling animation McDonald's? cells. Oh, sorry. Donald's? Yes, there was 27 million. 27,000 tomato McDonald's. Is that right? That was my favorite <laughs> shop in, in all of Japan. Um, well, not to, not to cut you off, but I think that this was a fantastic first segment to talk about the indies. Three different things sound amazing. But I want to get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast. I want to hear about the man and the game. So, yes. What what is going to be our next section, Faith, faithful host? Well, we're gonna we're gonna let's take a quick break. Okay. And uh, when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna get right into the main topic. Let's uh, let's keep it a little bit secret, and we'll be right back. So now that we're, we've got through some good Japanese indie game scene stuff, mm-hmm. got through the what are you playing? Um, so I think it's about time that we really got to like main topic. And um, you know, one of the biggest reasons that that, that Ben is here is that uh, we're talking about uh, Koji Igarashi's new project. Yes, and um, new, new project uh, on Kickstarter. Exactly. No less. That is that's the most important part of this. It's not just the fact that Koji Igarashi is working on a new project. He's working on a project on Kickstarter. It's live right now. Yep. And so to coincide with the this first week of the Kickstarter, the theme is characters. Okay. Right. So we've all seen the character. Are you sure the theme is not badass characters? Because when I look at them. That is the vibe that I get. I think I think it should be just implicit because it's obvious that it's about badass characters because all the characters are badass. And when you see it, it's just so obvious that you don't even need to write it down. It's an Egovania game, so of course, it's very funny the the name Egovania. If you don't mind me going into it, there's obviously Metroidvania that's the standard, but just out of respect. Um, for Nintendo, in fact, it's a different franchise, even though Jeremy Parrish may say, wait a second, I coined that phrase or whatever. Uh, I think he did. But nonetheless, Egovania is, is probably more accurate in so much as Ega really is the guy that brought back a lot of these older Metroid-esque aesthetics uh, into more modern games. And, you know, he's a very humble man, and he, he told me, he's like, you know what, I didn't really do anything special. These already existed. I loved Metroidvania. I loved Metroid games. Sorry, I loved Zelda games, and that's basically what we just did. We took Zelda, made it two D, and it ended up being Metroid-like. So I mean, it's it's so much more than that. Metroid-like. Metroid-like. It's a Metroid. It's Metroid-like. That's what this. No, we can't. No, it's an Egovania-like. It's an Egovania actual. That that is that's a whole other thing that I'd love to get into one day, and I I I had to stop myself because I almost 
started talking about what makes it different, and we're just we're never getting back on track if, if I get on that. Okay. Path. Oh, I do want to talk about the the characters. Badass. The badass characters. But I actually, you know, I know we all want to talk about the main characters. The main character is fantastic. But I actually wanted to touch real quick on Johannes. Yes. Um, and the reason why I like Johannes so much is actually his design is is pretty normal. It's kind of what you expect about a character who is not necessarily the main character. Has simple defining characteristics. Is not like an incredibly different design. But what I love about the character is actually the kind of role that he plays. He plays an almost like cue to James Bond sort of thing, at least yeah, from yeah. what we've seen so far. Yep, yep. And that's that's so, such a super cool role that I love in games, and I love in movies, and I love in books. And, you know, like like, like Da Vinci in uh, Assassin's Creed 2, mm-hmm. I always love those types of characters. They're introducing them, they're helping the character, even though they can't necessarily fight out there and and fight the good fight on the front lines, they're helping in whatever way they can. And that makes them very interesting, very complex character. What I like uh, about um, Johannes is that, you know, obviously his, his visual design, he, he looks kind of like a bookworm, and yet uh, he's he still has a strength to him. He's not like the super nerd character that can't fend for himself. He can fend for himself to a certain degree, Matter of fact, it's it's his his alchemy that is keeping the main character alive. So, you know, he is the perfect support character. If something happens to him, the theory is that the main character would pretty much be funny, right? For right. lack of a better word, yeah. Um, and so, ultimately, having this kind of he looks maybe not super buff, macho, bald space marine, but yet still. He is absolutely essential for the main character's quest. Uh, I really like that sort of connection between the two. They're a set, no matter what. Without him, she's in trouble. And he also needs her uh, in so much as she's the one with the badass sword to be able to kick the demon's butts, right? Whereas, and it's also very important that one of the differentiators... Differentiators? Differentiators, thank okay. you. I always have a problem with that face. <laughs> Differentialationator thing? It's like your last name. It's right? exactly like my last so, name. Nailed it. Um, is that I totally lost my point. That's what, what one of the differentiators... One of the differentiators... Uh, I don't know what you're going to talk about. I can talk about was, what I think is the differentiator. Wow. That was, and I had a really damn good point. Don't you hate it when just, that happens? It'll, it'll just... Yes, I got it. You got it back. Zing. 40-year-old okay. brain reactivated. <laughs> reactivated. So, um, <clears throat> what makes him cool is that he is, for all intents and purposes, the last alchemist, right? He was the alchemist that went against the, the guild when they're like, we're going to summon these demons to the planet and prove that alchemy is much better than science. He was the guy that stood against them, ultimately um, sparing him from their uh, fate. But he then has alchemic powers, which right. is also super interesting. He's like the, the magic user, so to speak, right? Right, right. Uh, and the last magic user mm-hmm. in the world. So that role makes him very interesting as the character kind of stuck between two worlds. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. Something that I really like about him... Uh, it's actually something I kind of like about both characters, but he he has with alchemic power. Uh, of course, 
It's the great of with great alchemic power comes great comes great alchemic responsibility. responsibility. <laughs> yeah, of course. And he knew this. Yeah. He did know that, and he he stood up for that. Like it gives him it gives him a, a edge to his character, but he also like he has uh, he has power that's capable of such incredible evil. And Miriam as well, you know, she has she has a power that is also a curse, and it can do it can do both beautiful things and terrible things. That's true, and the the idea is that. Without him, her the crystals that are grafted to her human flesh-based body continue to spread and spread and spread. And the idea is no one knows what happens when you're totally uh, covered, engulfed by this crystal rash or whatever. Um, but the theory is you become a demon, mm. you know. So he's kind of like her link to humanity. And it's ironic in so much as the people that he threw his lot in with were the guys that first of all did this to her, but ultimately could be ones bringing about the end of civilization as we know it. So he really does serve a really interesting role. But enough about Johannes. Let's talk about Jabel. 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 So he's like he's the main antagonist, right? That's he's correct. the main bad guy or rival. I mean, it's 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 is he one and the same? So I think that. Uh, it, obviously, it's still very early and things can change, uh, certainly for a Kickstarter. There's not a lot of the production pieces that have moved forward so far. But I think that he is presented to be that gray character that can very easily, uh, through the wrong choices and potentially through the wrong player choices, he could be what is, for all intents and purposes, the Richter of the first uh, Symphony of the Night you know, of that game. Whereas if you don't stop him, Dark Richter, you, you kill him and then you... That, that's the end. Right. Maybe there's a way in which this person can be saved. And there's ultimately another evil that's controlling. Who knows? This is right now. All we can do is just throw out hypotheses of what could happen. But he really does seem like a character with a duality of there's still a good to him. And whether the player in playing through the story will be able to get to that point or whether he will be just a pure evil person uh, is, I think, going to be something that we discover over time. I think what the most interesting thing about uh, Jebel's... Jebel? It's G-E-B-E-L, and I, all I can say is it's, it's Zabel is the Japanese pronunciation. Okay. Uh, I think it's Jebel, but maybe it's a Gabel. It could be any... It's the hard part about Japanese katakana is you don't really know exactly what that pronunciation is. Uh, I'm going to say Jebel. So Let's go with Jebel. What I love about Jabel's uh, aesthetic design, his, his, his physical design, is that if you look at the other, uh, if you look at the main character, yep. and you go back to the Jabel, uh, the main character's uh, sort of stained glass uh, uh, growths uh, are... Growths? Wow. Rash? Rash? Horrible? Terrible? Growth sounds worse than rash. It does. Anyways. anyways. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds gross when I think about it. I don't know why I said that. I don't want that. any stained glass growths. Uh, <laughs> It seems almost in you know sort of early stages, especially because it's being sort of held back by this alchemy. And you see with Chabelle, it's just wildly out of control. He is, he is very close to being lost to uh, the demons, or you know, one could already argue that he is, but very close to being engulfed and becoming a true demon, losing his own identity and soul, so to speak. And so he's not just oh excuse me. No, I was going to say he's really just on the. The cusp. Yes. He really is half and half. 
I would say over half, but to the point where he still has, he's still, he's like the Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader was more machine than man, but he still had that little fraction of his soul that Luke was able to dial into and at the very end reach. I was actually going to make that comparison a moment ago because uh, with t- such close ties to both Miriam and Johannes, you know, it, 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 it harkens back, I think, to, uh, to Luke and Leia. And, you know, they have very, very close ties. And um, if you know that from, from a relatively early on, uh, early point, then you're going to see towards the end, like, well, how, how is he going to reconcile that? Is, it, is that enough to, like, save him? Is it enough to give him any kind of redemption? Or is he, does he even want that? Or is he just lost forever? We can, we can uh, talk probably all day about the characters and how great they are. But I just want to say two final points uh, before moving into the man with the master plan. Yes. Kurashi. Yes. Um, and that is, I love the character schemes. The main character has a bluish uh, overall scheme. The uh, Jabelle has a, a darker uh, reddish um, crimsony color to him. And then Johannes, the brown. And that really, for character design, is going to pop off the background, which is, I really respect that. It's fantastic character design. I cannot say enough about the stained glass concept. Yeah. Everyone attached to the Kickstarter when these concepts were thrown out and the keyword of stained glass was announced. And not only just on the character design itself, but actually in the weapons, stained glass weapons, Holy Swiss cheese on rye. They look super cool. They look, they look so, so bad. fascinating. I cannot say enough. Like, I would be a warrior in this planet. I would probably go on the battlefield and be killed by a demon in three seconds, but I would do it just like it at one point hold a stained glass weapon. That's how cool it is. You're willing to go out and die to a demon. That's right. Because I know <laughs> I'd be revived against a video game and I'd have to embrace my mortality. Embrace your mortality. There you go. Um, what, what, you know, last comments about stained glass what was your first impression when you saw it? I love how much color that's going to put into this dark game. Because I've played, I think at this point, every single Castlevania that Igarashi has ever made. And game Boy? Did he make one for Game Boy? Oh, oh sorry. sorry. I, played, I played all the Game Boy Advance okay. ones. Yeah, I played yeah. all of the ones on DS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I played Rondo of Blood. Admittedly, I'm not on the PC Engine. but The one with the spinning dances. Right, of course. Spinning dances of blood. They're they're not insanely colorful games. Uh, That's true. They're they're dark. The first Game Boy Advance one was ridiculously dark because there was no backlight. There was no backlight. And I still I played that entire game. Circle of the Moon. Moon, Goodness. Admittedly, not an Igarashi game, but that was it was a great game and it was incredibly dark. This is the first Igarvania that I will have seen with such vibrant colors, and I think that's going to stand out really well uh, against the dark in, in in the setting. Yeah, I I just think it's. The, the, the colors and the characters, it's going to pop. They're going to look great on the backgrounds. It's going to be easy to see them. I think it's going to be so cool. Uh, and so, enough of us rambling. We've got something that's so cool coming up. Uh, after the break, we're going to have an interview with the man himself, Koji Igarashi. We can talk to him about characters, about his thoughts, and about the project itself. And we will be right back.
and today I'm lucky enough to be here with one of Japan's most famous and interesting creators. Uh, why don't you very quickly tell me who you are and what's brought you to where you are today? Hi. My name is Koji Igarashi. I'm a producer and uh, representative for the Japanese office here at the company named Artplay. I used to work at a major Japanese publisher uh, and I'm most known for my work on the Castlevania series, uh, most specifically Symphony of the Night and a lot of the other portable versions uh, of the Castlevania series that followed. Firstly, what is it that draws you specifically to the Gothic aesthetic? So, <clears throat> it was a very um, happy coincidence um, that I was able to um, work on something uh, that's a visual aesthetic that I, that I appreciate so much. But to be honest, uh, I was first, I think, enticed by working on the, the Castlevania series because I really found the Gothic aesthetic um, interesting. And then the more I got to work on that uh, brand and hone uh, what the visual aesthetic of that meant, it became closer and closer to, to what I liked personally. And then as I continued to release more of those games, uh, people began to associate me personally with this gothic aesthetic, uh, which I was totally fine with because it was something that, that I really liked in the first place. So it really was a match um, made in heaven when you think about it, me as a creator being fascinated with that style and being able to work on a game that works within that style. And then on top of that, have fans that appreciate that style. Are you heavily involved in the character creation process? So as far as how heavily I'm involved with the character creation process, uh, I'm sort of like the producer or the idea man. And so I come up with a high level um, concept of the world and basically what the drama is behind the scenes. And then from that point, we drilled on what the character could be like. Um, fortunately, we've had a fantastic character designer uh, on this title who was able to come up with some really fantastic details uh, and some visual pieces to the main character design that I think have really made a big difference. What do you think is essential to making a character iconic, both in terms of aesthetic and uh, the personality? Um, what I think makes a really good iconic character um, from both a, an aesthetic and a personality-wise sort of situation would be you really want to be able to tie in the main character to the plot uh, as well as to the key game elements, as well as to something visual that, that gives them a unique visual identity. And hopefully it's something that people can relate to or understand. So with this main character, the idea was we wanted to give the main character to make them be the beacon that was attracting the demons to the planet. So they're kind of a tragic character uh, in so much as that's, that is Miriam's lot in life. Um, and the idea was that there would be gems fused into her body. Uh, from that point, as we were considering different colored gems fused together, the character artist said, hey, this could kind of look like stained glass. And that's when that was a keyword that clicked with the entire development staff. And we're like, you know what? We can tie in that, that concept throughout the game. And it's also visually pleasing. It will work from an effect point of view. Uh, on top of that, 
the way we've designed Miriam is that these her stained glasses come together to uh, look almost like a rose. And a rose is a shape that people can relate to. It also uh, conjures up a sort of a softness that we found is very contrastive towards her general stares, facial expressions, et cetera, which are actually a lot more colder and harder. Um, because if you think about the situation she's been put in, basically a person against her own will that's bringing about potentially the end of the world at, at such a young age, and that potentially if things don't work out, her destiny could be to turn into a full-blown demon. So there's a lot of, of heaviness to this character, uh, but we wanted to also, uh, again, be very contrastive with the design just to also show a certain beauty to her. Uh, the beauty and toughness was something that we felt made this character very unique. Who's your favorite character among the ones that you've already revealed? Probably my favorite character is going to be Miriam, because you don't want to create a game in which you don't love the main character uh, of your game, whether that's a book, movie, uh, whatever. Um, and as for the reason why I, I really think Miriam such an awesome character is, it, it's honestly, it's a challenge to try and create um, a realistic, lovable, non-caricature uh, female character as as a male designer uh, because you just have never experienced life through the eyes of a female um, and what that can mean. So it brings about certain challenges, but what I like about this character, uh, gender aside, is that she's got this heavy background that that means her whole life has got to be an uphill battle. But you as the main character are controlling her and so you, as you fight through the game, are going to be going through this uphill battle as well. So I felt that there could be a connection between the main character's pain as well as the hard work that the gamer is going to put into uh, beat the title. So there's kind of a connection there uh, as far as that struggle uh, against the, the evil, whether it's Miriam against her fate or whether it's the gamer versus uh, hopefully what can be a really challenging game for them. What is it that you like so much about the stained glass? And why did you decide to use it in the game? So there are a lot of different things that you get out of this stained glass curse. And honestly, it, it was, I don't want to say dumb luck, but the idea was there would be magic gems fused in the main character's body and that that would allow them to use these magic powers. So that was kind of a, a rationale for how a normal human being would be able to use magic powers. But again, as I said, character design-wise, uh, it ended up naturally organically turning into, well, these kind of look like stained glass, which presents a visual beauty to something that's actually horrific. It's a it kind of like a disease that will eventually consume and uh, turn Miriam into a full-blown demon, uh, or so it is rumored or hypothesized. So by that rationale, there are these two conflicting sides about what you see and what is actually going on that I think is very interesting that we've been able to capture uh, in this game. And then the second part that makes this very, again, sort of like a dichotomy between two things is that the more the curse consumes her, the stronger she gets, the more power she gets. So the idea is the closer she becomes this evil thing that she doesn't want to become, the more it gives her power. And there's a certain really interesting struggle uh, that goes on that suggests that these magic powers, this getting to the, the uh, for lack of a better word, dark side, um, makes her stronger. But yet she wants to keep her humanity, which is the thing that grounds her and actually is her true strength. And ultimately the idea is 
that is going to be what separates her from the rival character, Jebel. What are the strongest influences on your game development? Do you read a lot of books or do you watch a lot of movies? Uh, honestly, I don't get a lot of inspiration from other forms of media, but if I was going to say there was one key inspiration for this game, uh, it would most likely be my previous works. And that's because this is a turning point in my life as a creator. Uh, it represents new opportunity. It represents a chance to, to start fresh, to revisit the things that I've done that I'm proud of, but also try to try something new um, and challenges that I perhaps couldn't have taken on when I was uh, at a large publisher. So by that rationale, those are going to be the key beat points that push me along, I think, in development and help me flesh out what this game is going to be. What role will Johannes play in the game? Is he going to be uh, like part of an in-game mechanic, or is he going to be part of the story, or both? Or how is that going to work out? So as far as the role Johannes will play in the game, um, it's still very early, and anytime you're this early in development, um, you try to be flexible um, before you uh, basically lock that person into a certain role. That being said, uh, I know he's the last alchemist, um, and he will be he will serve as an in-game support character for Miriam in so much as it's it's his glyphs around her crystal disease, um, the magic crystal growths that are occurring on her uh, that keep them at bay from spreading. That being said, he as the last alchemist is able to to fuse magic um, with materials and actually create these magic crystals that will both take Miriam one more step closer to full-blown transformation into being a demon, but also give her new powers that she may need to defeat the enemy. So again, for every time she takes this step forward, there's a gigantic risk associated with it, but sometimes she must sacrifice a piece of her own human soul to become stronger, uh, to fight against the, the demons. And Johannes, who's kind of like her big brother and definitely cares about her, he's kind of helping her one step at a time towards the evil side. Um, and so every time he does this, it, it hurts him. But he knows he's the only one left in the world that can help her uh, adapt, become stronger, to stand a fighting chance to stop the the oncoming plague. So um, again, he, he is a very interesting character and how he ties with her is also interesting. Game-wise, we know he'll be the person that helps craft magic in the game uh, out of the enemy drops. Um, potentially, he may also be a person that helps craft uh, magic into your weapons and upgrade your weapons, too. So uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, Johannes in the game. What was your inspiration for Javel? What kind of role is he going to play in the game? So as far as you know, what, what the key inspiration for Zivel and what role he's going to play... When I decided to lead the game with a, a female protagonist, what makes that interesting uh, from a design perspective is there are, you know, two basic key genders that human beings can become, female or male. Uh, and so what that creates is a dichotomy, a natural right or left, a natural plus or minus. Um, and so the second Miriam became the hero, that meant that Jibel had to become the person uh, that went down the wrong path. So she's suggestive of the good side of things, and he's suggestive of the bad side of things. But it's never, of course, as clear-cut as good or bad, because that's a very boring theme to play with. So both have gray sides. Both have tragic twists in their life 
that have forced them to do good and bad things. However, one has embraced more of his his lot in life and it's been more twisted by how he's been used and basically meant to be an experiment to call down the demons to the, the planet. Whereas Miriam could just as easily have been as negative, frustrated, and in, in, embraced the, the, the negative side of her life and her fate, uh, continues to try to do the good thing. So I'm trying to let both characters play off of each other and try to make it seem that they're not necessarily good or bad, but they're just two different types of people in a bad situation that have made different key decisions in life and where that's landed them. So Javel wasn't clearly good or evil. Is that side of his personality going to be explored in the game's story? Especially for the for how Miriam is being positioned in this game, we want to make sure that Zabel represents the bad side initially, so that when you're playing as him, when you're playing sorry, not as him, when you're playing against him, he is the bad guy. He's the man that you want to defeat. Um, he's representative of the key problems that are occurring, and that's going to be the positioning of the the overall key plot arc. That being said, this is an Ega game. Uh, and so I like my characters to have a certain gray side to them as well. And perhaps somewhere along the gameplay, that gray side will be explored uh, as well. And we'll see that potentially Jabelle is not all evil. Is Miriam going to be a silent protagonist? Or are we going to get to see her talking during the game? Yeah, she'll definitely have her own voice. Um, I see a lot of games where I think silence is equated to toughness. And uh, I don't necessarily think that's the case. So in order to give her a nice, robust personality that people can really warm up to, um, I want to make sure that she has her own way of thinking, her own way of talking, of expressing herself in the game, not just through her actions, also through her voice. Thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us today, you guys. So, uh, I know you're really busy, man. You've got a lot of awesome stuff to, to work on. So really, we really couldn't say that we appreciate it any more than we do. Uh, J-Play will be right back. Man, I'll tell you what, I have worked with so many different creators, Japanese creators, cannot say enough about Koji Igarashi and about just how humble he is. He is a super nice dude, like honestly as an agent, this isn't necessarily something that is going to be great for us, but I don't care. This is something that I've decided to do because I love this creator. He is awesome. He is a great human being and he just cares about his craft and I'll tell you what, if this Kickstarter doesn't get, you know, completed, I'm never going to get to be able to play another Egomania game uh, by the man himself. So you do it for the passion. passion. That's it's for right. The passion. It is for the passion. That's right. And humble guys need dudes like you to to look out for them, to tell everybody how great they are, so that they get the attention and and the and the support. Dan, that they need. you are a great dude, and you deserve all of the attention and support. So just pat yourself on the back. Man, if, I, if I ever need an agent, I know where to go. There you go. That is a hundred percent sarcasm. I can tell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we would have another section normally at this time. And yeah. Where would the section B. We normally have a questions corner. It's a little hard to ask for questions for something nobody knew existed until they listened to it. 
so instead what we're going to do is uh, we're going to skip over it and instead let everybody know how they can get involved in this section next time. Um, and the best way to do it um, is to send your questions to the Playism Ask FM. It is ask.fm slash playism en. That's P-L-A-Y-I-S-M-E-N. And uh, we'll we'll pull the best questions that we have. We get taught we do get troll questions, we do skip them, but if it's funny enough, we might take it. Um so this is a voice question that they leave, or is this only a typed question? So for now, we're doing text questions. And what we're going to do is we're going to grab those, and then um, we're going to set up a way to leave voice questions as well, because I think that is a super cool thing to do. Because, yeah, I want to hear people's voices. I want to hear them in the flesh tell us what they think. I think it's a great idea. We'll, we'll do a mixture of them, of voice and text in the future. I think for now we'll do text, and then once we figure out the best way to do voice, uh, we'll do a little bit of both. So, um, people that, you know, obviously, Iga is the big name here that people want to talk to, but we will have a quick video segment that Iga will answer uh, their questions in a, a short video piece. Um, so, that will happen every week. So, don't feel that the door is closed on your questions to Iga. That will still be something we can continue to do throughout the campaign. Um, which brings me to my question. Oh, Even though we're not doing question corner. Oh, boy. <clears throat> oh, I'm scared. I didn't even know this question was coming, who, so I'm scared. Who are we going to have on the next podcast? Oh, Because it's going to be a tough act to follow, Ega. I'll tell you. No, it's true, but there's so many like amazing people uh, that we have been talking <laughs> to and want to talk to. People that are involved in the project who are contributing their incredible experience and talent. Ben Judd is on the next podcast. Is that what you're telling me? Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> No, drumroll please, and drumroll is, is the best word for it, and that is, the plan is, is Michiru Yamane, correct? Yes, correct. Who is this person? She is the composer of a great many Castlevania titles, uh, also the composer for uh, Project Scissors Nightcry, which is a horror Kickstarter that uh, completed a few months ago. Um, nice, nice. So she's, she's contributing to that, but really the whole reason we want to have her on is because um, she has contributed so much to many of Igarashi-san's amazing work, and her music is what a lot of people think about when they think about the audio in Castlevania and in and his games. We feel that the audio and such wonderful uh, music contributes so much to building the, the sense of the world for the users. So like, the, the importance of her audio just brings out the world, it makes it what it really is, and uh, we, we want to talk about world building next week, so we feel like we can't even separate that from the music. And, you know, she did all the Symphony of the Night music. That's we don't, right. want, we don't want to talk about in too, de- in, too, in too much detail about, you know, her role, because that's going to be for the next podcast. But let's just say this. That is barred on one of my favorite soundtracks. Mm-hmm. She did the uh, theme music for the Kickstarter pitch video. So I think that our next episode is going to be much better with approximately 100% less discussion of Love Plus. Yes, 100%. I'm hoping. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with us. Uh, Obviously, this is an organic, ever-changing process. Um, We're a new group working together, and it sometimes takes a bit to iron out the kinks. But hopefully, uh, some of the things we discussed were interesting, uh, and hopefully you continue to uh, dial in and listen to the melodic uh, tones of Mr. Nyan Ramachandran. And, of course, uh, his sidekick, Sideshow Dan Stern. 
Absolutely. Uh, so uh, be sure to check back next time for J Play, the Plays and Podcast. We will be back next week. Support your indies. Support your indies. Support your indies. Support your indies.